Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Good evening. This is Gullah Jack, aka Russell A. Swilly, aka Gullah Jack. I'm here with Brother Amos and Brother Macaroo. This is the Black Liberation Media. Just a couple of comments before we get into the recognition of one of our bravest warriors, Fred Hampton. Of course, here recently we commemorated the 50-year anniversary of his death. Jed Gahoover would intone that justice is incidental to law and order following the death of many of our revolutionaries. In the white mind, it's clearly that we are the ultimate racial other. Africans, we're viewed as lazy, even though we work from can't see in the morning to can't see at night. Disdain for us is reflected in the school to pipeline prison system, mass incarceration, white flight. Suffice it to say, the highest level of segregation in many of these neighborhoods are between black and white. The cry of Black Lives Matter is quickly met with the rejoinder that all lives matter to minimize our pain and our suffering. There was a curious satisfaction. I was looking at a picture today of the police officers who were gleeful as the body of Fred Hampton was being taken from the Black Panther Party office. Whites tend to use blacks to feel warm-hearted and noble. I was working with a group of kids today and we saw a movie called Blindside. I saw it about five times, had about five sets of kids who visited with me. And one thing was obvious to them is that many of these noble whites, end of quote, intervened in our situation to rescue us from black misery. Cinema has been a detriment to the imagery regarding blacks, referring back to black blindside. There was not a positive message in there. All of the imagery that was depicted of black people was stereotypical. You had the incompetent social worker. You had the mother who was husbandless, who was addicted to crack. You had the muted black behemoth who sat idly by as a little white kid negotiated his contract. And of course you had the black gangster. And suffice it to say, Sandra Bullock was the white mother who rescued this brother, Michael Orr, which I'm sure in real life, Michael Orr probably found the movie distasteful. Take it away brothers. This is the Black Liberation Media. That's a story about uh, Michael Orr, the football player? Yes, yes, okay. yes. Okay, he used to play here in Charlotte, didn't he? Absolutely. Okay, is he still in the league? That's a very good question. Okay. Okay. Abibi um, <clears throat> Fahodier, Badu Mapapano, Habarigani, Kwanzaa is approaching. Another opportunity to discuss some issues um, with the African family across this planet. This past uh, December the 4th marked the 50th observation of the cowardly assassination of a courageous young black revolutionary by the name of Fred Hampton in Chicago, Illinois. He was the leader of the uh, Illinois chapter of the uh, Black Panther Party, affectionately known as Chairman Fred, 21 years old. A mere 21 years old, you know, having been born on August 30th, 1948. Part of the uh, Magnificent 40s, I call them, the group of black people that were born uh, in the 1940s, which includes uh, Kwame Ture and 
then known as Stokely Carmichael, Jamil Abdul-Elamine, H. Rap Brown, Huey Newton, Marimba Ani, Baba Mikasa, Willie Ricks, Angela Davis, many, Kathleen Cleaver, uh, Sada Shakur, so many of our courageous revolutionaries rose up in the uh, 60s, were born in the 1940s. Uh, Fred, like a lot of people, evolved into uh, this leadership position uh, as a young man. He uh, demonstrated uh, both uh, athletic prowess and uh, academic achievement in school. Uh, his goal was actually to play, uh, play Major League uh, Baseball. Uh, he got involved with the NAACP, as, as a lot of uh, people might do during that particular period of time because there wasn't a lot else going on. And uh, when Dr. King came to Chicago in 1966 to protest the the horrible housing conditions that African-Americans were living under in the uh, ghetto, the south side of Chicago, the ghetto, and they began to have uh, marches for open housing into white supremacist strongholds like uh, uh Cicero, Illinois, and other uh, neighboring suburbs of Chicago, they were met with what Dr. King described as a level of white supremacy that he hadn't even seen in Mississippi. He saw in Chicago. It must have been an eye-opening experience. But uh, young Fred was out with that. Uh, so this is part of, I'm simply citing this to, to uh, document, you know, that there's an evolutionary process uh, to becoming a revolutionary. Uh, he joined the Black Panther Party and was uh, promptly uh, promoted up through the ranks and uh, got the attention of the FBI's counterintelligence program as early as, early as at least 1967. They opened a file on him, began to placed wiretaps on the homes of his mother where he was living. Uh, they did the same thing to uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal. I think Mumia might have been 15 when they uh, started tracking him. Um, and so, you know, with the COINTELPRO operations uh, taking place, keeping tabs on, on, on Fred, one of the first things they attempted to do, because Fred was... Fred was, in my opinion, the consummate organizer with unlimited potential because he spoke the language of the lumping proletariat, the young brothers and sisters in the streets, the gangster disciples, the Blackstone Rangers, et cetera, et cetera. And he spoke the language of academics on college campuses. Uh, just a rare, very rare individual. And so one of the first things that the... Uh, Counterintelligence program tried to do, led by uh, J. Edgar by day, Mary by night. You know, he dressed up, he put on a dress and called himself Mary at night, Hoover, was to uh, try to get the Panthers involved in uh, a beef with the uh, Blackstone Rangers, which were led by Jeff Fort. They would send uh, Jeff Fort a letter that was supposedly written by Fred Hampton talking trash about the Rangers. And then they would send Fred a note, allegedly from Jeff Ford talking trash about the Panthers. But these two brothers were smarter, much, much smarter than a lot of our brothers around the country that fell into this trap. They met and resolved the differences. They said, you know, look, we don't, we've never had a beef with one another. We've been running the streets of Chicago for years. What is this? They saw through it. FBI plot failed. Now, <clears throat> the Panthers went through ideologically a lot of twists and turns. You know, they started as the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. They had a 10-point program that had a lot of, uh, of nationalist uh, platform, uh, nationalist orientation in it. <clears throat> and then they became more oriented towards Marxism and the class struggle. And for that reason, a lot of people have attempted to co-opt Fred and say, you know, that this, you know, that uh, that's where he was, that he believed in uh, the class struggle, uh, 
It is a fact. He made numerous statements that uh, that he believed in a working class solidarity. He had alliances with uh, the uh, Puerto Ricans, the Young Lords, and some uh, a group of white people from Appalachia who had moved up to Chicago called the Young Patriots. That is a fact. But we have to keep in mind that this brother is only 21 years old. He's in a process of development. Uh, he did uh, make a clear break with the, uh, the Weatherman organization during their days of rage. He said that they were opportunistic, anarchistic, and, cutler, and uh, customistic, uh, referencing uh, uh, George Armstrong Custer. So uh, he's in a process of, of development. But the reason, in my opinion, why the government decided to take out Fred Hampton, uh, you know, roughly uh, 12 months after they took out Bunchy Carter and John Huggins in Los Angeles is because of his potential to reach the group in this country that they fear the most. They don't fear the poor whites in Appalachia, no matter how political they might get, and they may get political. They don't fear others, but young black males that are that have a high level of consciousness re represent a fear, and that's that's the fear I think that Fred struck because you see a lot of commentary now saying, well, they took him down because he organized the first Rainbow Coalition and whatnot. Uh, there were no, there was no one in the house when the, when the police attacked them other than black people. Okay, so we have to understand where his base was. Uh, so. The when Richard Nixon uh, was inaugurated, he and uh, Jagger Hoover met, and I'm not saying that Linda Johnson had the had the handcuffs on uh, on Hoover. Most certainly, he didn't. But Nixon wanted Hoover to escalate COINTELPRO. He wanted a full fledged frontal attack on the Black Panther Party in particular, and others. And so you can see that the that the escalation. Now they had published this uh, Black Nationalist Hate Group thing back in uh, 1967, but it didn't even include the Black Panther Party. And even when they updated it in uh, March of uh, 1968, coincidentally, one month before Dr. King was killed, they updated the uh, the Black uh, the Black Nationalist Hate Group. Uh, uh, format that they had put out about the uh, people that they considered the severe threats. And the Black Panther Party was not part of it. They identified Kwame Ture, Jamil El uh, Amin, uh, Max Stanford from RAM, uh, Elijah Muhammad, and, uh, of course, uh, I'm missing one. I forgot somebody. Uh, Dr. King, Martin Luther King. So, and this was when Hoover made the statement that these black leaders needed to be neutralized. And one month after Hoover made that statement, Dr. King was neutralized. He was, he was taken out. 1969 was particularly brutal because it started off in January with the killings of Black Panthers uh, uh, John Huggins and Bunchy Carter. Bunchy Carter was a person very much like Fred Hampton, unlimited potential to reach the youth. He had come out of the uh, Slauson's gang. They called him the mayor of the ghetto. These guys represented a severe threat. And uh, the Chicago Police Department operating uh, as part of the United States government's war on the black liberation movement uh, executed Fred cowardly in his sleep on December the 4th, 1969. Uh, in fact, uh, his, uh, his girlfriend who was pregnant with his son at the time in the room with him, when they started firing shots, they knew exactly where Fred would be sleeping because a race trader by the name of William O'Neill had given them a diagram of the apartment that identified exactly where everyone was and about 90% of the shots that were fired were fired toward the bed where Fred Hampton was sleeping, and they knew that because of this race trader. Uh, he would commit suicide several years later, but suicide was too good for him. Uh, 
Fred apparently was not killed, uh, Sister and Jerry said. Uh, when they started dragging him out, she said one of the cops said, uh, I think he's still alive. And they opened up, uh, fired some more shots into his body, and then they said, well, he's good and dead now. And then as Gola Jack said, they were smiling as he uh, walked out of the building. Uh, Fred is famous for... Let me, you, let me ask you one thing. Yes, uh, go ahead. Isn't it true that William O'Neill went out to eat with Fred Hampton earlier that night and put something in his drink that made him pass out to be able to sleep through all of that gunfire? He was definitely drugged. Uh, <clears throat> at what point in time the drugging took place, you know, I have no knowledge of that. But, uh, yes, uh, William O'Neill, uh, who had, uh, penetrated the upper echelon of the Black Panther Party, uh, was in fact a race traitor and was detrimental and definitely responsible for the drugging. But what I don't say was that uh, at that time you're talking about potential. The Blackstone Rangers may have numbered as many as 100,000. And uh, I remember brothers on the street talking about the possible alliance of the Blackstone Rangers, Black Peacestone Rangers, who later became the Rookins in the Black Panther Party, uh, Jeff Fort being the Army, the Black Panther Party, Fort representing the Army, the Black Panther Party representing the administrative uh, leadership of this uh, potential. Uh, Brother McAroo was talking about the COINTELPRO program uh, three major points. One was to stop the rise of a black messiah who could unify and electrify the masses. And then Hugh Hoover subsequently gave those leadership heads. He felt that Elijah Muhammad was too old. Stokely Carmichael, I read the report, an agent of repression, has the necessary charisma, and of course Dr. King and others. Second point was to discredit black leadership in the eyes of the so-called respectable Negro community. And the third and more critical point was, you alluded to it, brother, that the Negro youth, the black youth, African youth in the U.S., in the US must be taught that if they succumb to nationalist ideologies, they will be killed. Exactly, exactly. And uh, just, to, uh, just to validate uh, what you, uh, the point you brought up, uh, Brother Amos, and I'm glad you did bring it up, uh, because I had, didn't mention it. Uh, back in May, ABC News did a, uh, was doing a special report on 1969, and one, uh, one of the segments from 1969 was on the Black Panther Party, and most of it is about a, what, maybe 45-minute program. You can get it online. It's called the FBI and the Panther has a lot of commercials, but you can never get your way around them with, with, with uh, some clicks. Sister and Jerry said that, that William O'Neill picked her up and carried her, you know, to the, uh, to the apartment. And I believe Chairman Fred was with them when, she, when, when, they, when they picked him up. He may not have been. But she said that as soon as... Uh, they got in the room where they slept. Chairman Fred fell dead to sleep. And she thought that was very strange. She thought it was very strange that he just went out like that. So that lends credence to the, uh, you know, the suspicions of, uh, you know, this, this race traitor uh, who did severe damage. So uh, they were so afraid of Fred Hampton that they, did, they didn't even want to face the potential of him being able to shoot back alive. They wanted him to be knocked out so that nobody's life would be at risk. No white police officer's life would be at risk. That's how much of a coward these people are. Exactly. And, uh, and Jerry said that she heard him knock on the door. The chairman was out. He didn't hear anything. And Mark Clark, the other brother who was killed, Fred was 21, Mark was 22. Mm -hmm. Mark said, who is it? And she said, the Chicago police responded, Tommy Gunn. And they opened fire 
and they killed Mark Clark first. And in the process of falling down, uh, he fired one shot, you know, just maybe just like a reflex, like you'll see in the movie sometime, a gunfight, you know, Doc Holliday and Johnny Ringo. Uh, and then they came straight to the room and started firing into the room where, uh, where, where the chairman was sleeping. I think uh, three or four other people were, were wounded. Cowardly, cowardly. I have more respect for uh, the guys in the Old West that would just have a gunfight, man to man. I mean, they, they say, well, that's barbaric. I have more respect for Johnny Ringo and Doc Holliday, you know, not that they actually ever had a real gunfight, even though both of them were gunslingers, supposedly, uh, than these guys that would come up on someone in the middle of the night. I mean, think about it. These are the people whose ancestors put on bed sheets because they were too afraid to show their face. And then they attacked black men and women who they knew were unarmed. Right. The black men and women who they knew were armed, they ran from, like Robert F. Williams. But yet, they knew that the Black Panther Party carried guns, so they had to ensure that the person who they thought was the biggest threat, which was Fred Hampton, would be incapable of doing anything at the time that they decided to raid. Right. And the interesting thing is when you go through Fred's speeches, you don't hear Fred talking a lot about guns. You don't hear, you don't, you don't, you know, first time I heard Kwame Teray speak out of UNC Charlotte, I was a student in high school, and about, about the third or fourth line out of his mouth was, we are for revolutionary violence. And I'm like, wow, what does that mean? And so, but you, you, but you didn't hear, you, you, you know, Fred was not, he didn't advocate that. That ain't to say that he wasn't, he was obviously prepared to fight and die. Mm -hmm. But they couldn't go back and say, well, you know, he said, you know, kill the pigs or something like that. Uh, you know, like Cleaver, the kind of comments that Cleaver was making and Bobby Seale, you know, to a certain extent. And so, um, so Fred was about organizing. That's what he was about. And he posed a severe threat. Uh, but I'm going to let you all go on before I come back and talk about the attack that they tried four days later in Los Angeles. But, you know, Fred said that uh, you can jail a revolutionary, but you can't jail a revolution. You can kill a revolutionary, but you can't kill revolution. But you can severely wound it and you can cripple it to the point that it doesn't even appear to exist as is the case today. I believe that the spirit of Fred Hampton lives in some of our people, but we don't have a lot of manifestations of it. And so, you know, when I'm going through documenting how did we arrive at this point in history, one of the things I always talk about that a lot of people don't talk about is the FBI's war on, or the United States government, war on the black liberation movement. That's one of the critical factors. It's hard to win a war when your best generals are being taken out. You can go throughout history, you know, to Moses III, or Ramses, Ramesu the Great, Amanorinus. You go through history and, uh, you know, Lovachur, Dessaline. You go throughout history and you will find great generals leading courageous and heroic people when your best generals are being taken out, it's difficult to win a battle. So that's where we are, but I'm going to pass it on, and I'll come back a little bit later. Yeah, just just as an addendum, brother, before I turn over to Brother Amos, I know he has a, uh, some heavy stuff to talk about. It just, you know, the thing that I was struck by was the one photo I alluded to earlier, the curious satisfaction on the faces of the police officer, very reminiscent of the type of glee and satisfaction you that you do see in your historical documents uh, in the wake of a lynching. And Hillary Clinton. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Laughing at the death of Gaddafi. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we came, we saw. He died. He died. And, uh, you know, the, the point that Dr. Teray raised earlier was the, 
bravado on the part of a critical mass of revolutionaries in the uh, urban enclaves who 15 years prior to the, um, the Panthers becoming an organized fighting unit uh, were cut, were, would not shoot at the police. 15 years later, you know, around the mid-60s, brothers would engage in uh, retaliatory violence. So uh, it was incumbent upon the police the system in general to create so much stability in the black community after the police had been driven out or at least had become leery of armed uh, insurrection. It was incumbent upon the police to create so much stability that we literally invited the police back into our community. And I saw something the other day where uh, this uh, racist white supremacist bar was talking about, um, he made a statement to the effect that if, you know, if black people, I'm sure that's who we're referring to, if we complain about and protest police activities in the uh, in the urban centers, well, then they won't have protection, <laughs> you know? So uh, yeah. good riddance. What protection are they having now? Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, they're doing their job is to contain and to intimidate. You know, that's that's doing their job. Somewhere else it might be to serve and protect, but, you know, with us it's clear what the Patty Rollers have historically done Vigilante groups, people with sheets and hoods and blue suits, etc. Brother, almost. Appreciate it, Gullah Jack. Earlier this week, on December the fourth, we all saw the headlines that came out about George Zimmerman suing Trayvon Martin's parents, Florida prosecutors, Benjamin Crump, Rachel Gentile, and others for one hundred million dollars. And it brought out it brought out a lot of raw emotion from people who responded on social media. And when we did the research behind this lawsuit and the targets for this lawsuit, um, we look at the complaints that were put forth. Before we get into the complaints, looking into this, this seems to be a publicity stunt that was put on by George Zimmerman, his attorney, but specifically uh, film director Joel Gilbert. If you're not familiar with Joel Gilbert, he is a right-wing conspiracy theorist who is also a filmmaker. Uh, He has appeared a lot on the show InfoWars, Alex Jones Network, and he produced a film called the Trayvon Hoax, (laughs) unmasking the witness fraud that divided America. So it's not a coincidence that the day that this press conference took place, which announced this lawsuit coming forth, uh, that this film was supposed to be screened following the press conference at a movie theater in Boca Raton. The movie theater received so much negative press that they decided not to to release the film, and they made a statement and said that Trayvon Martin, Zimmerman, and nobody was mentioned when this film director came to them wanted to show this film in the in the movie theater. So it was a publicity stunt for this film director and also for George Zimmerman to make some money because they obviously know that they have a very, very, very small chance of actually winning this type of lawsuit. But also, not only was it a publicity stunt, it's also a very tricky attempt, as many oftentimes Europeans do, to rewrite history. So if they can alter the narrative of what took place now, the title of the film is The Trayvon Hoax. We know that it's not a hoax that Trayvon Martin is dead. <laughs> we know that it's not a hoax that Trayvon Martin was killed by George Zimmerman. We know that it's not a hoax that Trayvon Martin was stalked by George Zimmerman. We know that it's not a hoax that Trayvon Martin um, was killed as he was coming home during the NBA All-Star game at halftime. So we know that this event historically took place. But what you have here is people trying to insert a different narrative to try to change the 
the overall narrative and make it seem as if what took place was not only justified, but it was somehow the victim victimizing George Zimmerman by bringing forth what they say is a false witness. So if you go to the lawyer's website, LarryClayman.com, you can read the details of this lawsuit. But here they say specifically that the complaint alleges that in March 2012, the Sanford Police Department thoroughly investigated the shooting of Trayvon Martin and closed the case as self-defense. A week later, Martin family attorney Benjamin Crump produced a recorded audio tape of Diamond Eugene, whom he said was Trayvon's 16-year-old girlfriend who was on the phone with Trayvon just before the altercation. However, two weeks later, 18-year-old Rachel Gentile, the alleged imposter, appeared before prosecutors claiming to be Diamond Eugene and provided false statements to incriminate Zimmerman based on coaching from others. So their argument is that because the prosecutors brought forth this fake witness in place of the girl who was actually on the phone with Trayvon during the time or before he was killed, they're saying that this is justifiable um, for them to file this, this lawsuit against his parents and also against the lawyers. Uh, like I said, this was originally this this was origi originally uh, published in a book uh, by Joe Gilbert, and uh, he did the research, I guess, looking at Trayvon's cell phone records, and uh, they also found out. I guess they found pictures and other evidence that showed that this Diamond Eugene girl was actually a totally different girl than the girl that was on the witness stand. Now. If that is true, in no way does that incriminate Trayvon Martin's parents because they're not in charge of the prosecutor's case against George Zimmerman. They are just the parents of the victim who was killed. So I don't see how you can include them, number one, in this lawsuit. And number two, also, uh, they have Benjamin Crump, who was acting as Trayvon Martin's parents or Trayvon Martin's lawyer, even though he he was not actually the prosecutor who actually um, who actually questioned Rachel Gentile on the witness stand. He was more of the the lawyer in the background, uh, pretty much for the media and for public for, for the for the public and public uh con contact with the family. So I'm not sure how how much he played a role as they're saying into um providing this witness or coaching the witness or whatever they you know whatever they're saying that he that he did or his role in that. Um but that's where this is. So if they somehow do, however, win this lawsuit. Then, in the future, when people look back at this case, especially people who are already conspiracy theorists, they'll just write off Trayvon Martin's life as another hoax like 9-11 or, um, you know, you know, of course, InfoWars, they also say that Sandy Hook was a hoax or uh, Columbine was a hoax. So... These are people that are belittling the life of Trayvon while at the same time elevating the life and the status of Zimmerman who honestly should have never made it out alive after what he did and the stuff that happened concurrently after he did what he did. All of the incidents that took place with him popping back up in the public eye, uh, you know, the incidents that happened between him and his girlfriend, other people that he got into fights with, other people that he pulled guns on, and all of these things that took place. I'm surprised that George Zimmerman is still alive and well. <laughs> the guy that shot at Zimmerman on one particular occasion, I understand, has received 20 years. Right. 
Something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, just. <clears throat> you know, uh, I read the the data that you read on the uh, attorney's site. And if they're doing it for a publicity stunt, it seems to me that they could be opening themselves up to a countersuit of defamation of character, particularly from the perspective of, uh, you know, the parents, Crump and uh, Rachel uh, Jantel. Is that how to pronounce it? Is that her name? Rachel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, because what they are saying is that somebody in the Trayvon Martin uh, camp switched out the witnesses, the person who was on the phone with him. Now, let me say this. For any young person that might be in this situation or anybody may be in a situation like this again, if you are being stalked, if you want to make a call and leave your phone on so that somebody can hear you, fine. Don't be on the phone holding a conversation when somebody is stalking you. You might, I mean, unless you go, unless you're gonna try to call nine one one and hope they're gonna get there before the stalker gets to you. You need to be thinking survival. You need to be surveying uh, the geography of the area, the topography of the area, looking for how do I survive? How do I get out of this? Because the first thing that has to be in your mind, if you are a uh, Trayvon Martin, a 16-year-old or a 17-year-old, and you're walking at night and a single white man is walking behind you, you have got to assume he is armed. You have got to assume that. And so you don't need to be holding no conversations with nobody. You know, you could call maybe 911 and say, I'm being stalked. I'm going to leave my phone on, but I'm planning my escape. Please don't, please don't drop this call. Or if you want to, you know, if you're on the phone with a friend or whoever. But you don't need to be talking, holding a conversation with somebody. You need to be like, you need to be totally aware. How close is this guy to me? Is there an alleyway? Is there, you know, is there somewhere I can escape? I haven't done anything, but that's what we need to be thinking. So I just wanted to get that out there first. And that was one of the ideas that Brother Sundiata, when, you know, when we started the uh, Yuhura Sasa Restoration Academy, you know, what motivated him was what could Trayvon Martin have done to survive? If he'd known martial arts, that certainly would have been a great benefit. But tactical maneuvers, thinking survival, being focused on survival. You don't need to be on the phone with Rachel, Diamond, uh, you know, or whoever, you know, I mean, Alicia yeah. Keys, I don't care who, I mean, you yeah, don't need, man. you don't need to be on the phone. You need to be thinking survival. Definitely not Alicia Keys. <laughs> but I'll say this, one of the, <laughs> one of the main uh, things that happens in, because I recently, I recently uh, went to a class, self-defense class, where they were teaching uh, these sisters about sex trafficking and uh, human trafficking and, and abductions. And one thing that happens during abductions is the people who are often abducted are silent. They don't make any noise. Oftentimes they don't scream. And it happens so fast. Most, most abductions happen between 10 and 25 seconds. And the person is, is gone. So another thing that Trayvon could have did is he could have turned around and looked right at him and, and asked him, are you following me? And said it loud enough so that the neighbors would have walked outside and saw what was going on. And that would have put Zimmerman on notice so that he would have felt uncomfortable approaching this man. Right, right. 
you know, I now I mean, obviously I'm not I'm not a lawyer, but let so what this what this uh, conspiracy is saying that they that they essentially switch these two people out, meaning that they would have to switch the phones. Now you know I know that there's some prosecutors that you know may not be you know at the top of their class. Uh, you know George Bush graduated from Yale, but you would think that. If they're going to put this Rachel, young, this young lady named Rachel on the witness stand based on her conversation, that they would have a record of her receiving a call. Now, even if they switch phones, I guess that's possible that they could have done that, but this person would have had a whole lot of calls from a lot of other people. I mean, I just don't see the process. The prosecution could be that sloppy because maybe they didn't care about, you know, getting a conviction. They should have charged Zimmerman with felony stalking. At least they could have got him on that if, uh, if they had thought about, you know, pro- you know, charging him with that. I mean, you got, you got to, like, throw enough stuff out there, right, so that something sticks. So and, I mean, hindsight is also twenty twenty, but another thing that that Trayvon could have done is he could have instead of being on the phone with the Diamond Girl, or even if he was on the phone with her, he could have said, "Let me hang up and call you back," and he could have started recording. And when Zimmerman approached him, he could have started recording right there, and that would have been the video evidence that could have been used to prove yeah. what yeah. really happened. Yeah, and see, and I think what's required for all of that, what you saying. What's required is training. Is training. You you gotta you gotta have that mindset so that when you get in that situation, you already know. Yeah. I mean, it's like we have we and we've discussed it on this on this uh, podcast. Every time we see these incidents like this, we we talk about it, warn our people. Even if when you walk it through a supermarket or a parking lot, be aware of who is around you. Who is coming up behind you? Use everything to your advantage. You know, I mean, if you walk, it doesn't help. It doesn't hurt to turn turn around and look just to just to see because we've seen people killed in these supermarkets and in stores by white supremacists who walked up but sneaked up behind them. You're not getting behind me. Hey, wait a minute. I need my space. You know, I gotta have at least enough room to kick, right? So, so I mean, it just uh, just those kinds of things. But I, but I'm thinking, I'm saying that if this was just a hoax, I, I would I would be filing if I was Rachel uh, Jean Taylor, and I was on, I would be filing a countersuit, you know, against these clowns because you know they published pictures. Uh, this the, the so-called diamond. Now did. Did did Rachel actually say that she was diamond? I mean, I don't know. I you know I I I, I you know haven't gone over the transcripts of the case, but if uh, if it was a hoax and they just just throwing this out there to get some publicity for this uh, documentary, this movie, then you know I I would be looking at filing a countersuit if I were the Martin family and uh, Ben Crump. I'm sure Crump. Being the astute lawyer that he is, sorry, I stopped up my my I've stopped up because my had my granddaughter, she came down with something and uh, you know these kids are man they in these schools and places as repositories of germs. So I hate if I sound stopped up, but I mean that's uh that's the point I wanted to make and I do want to get to this uh, December the eighth thing, but I'll let the brothers go ahead and I don't know how much time we got left. Yeah, go ahead and get to it. We got about ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. So, Fred and Mark Clark were killed on uh, December the 4th, 1969. Four days later, in Los Angeles, where there had been a shootout in Campbell Hall at UCLA that took the lives of Black Panthers, Al Prentice, Bunchy Carter, and John Huggins. 
the person who did the killing was supposedly a member of the US organization, Marlonica Ringer's US organization. But an FBI agent has said that he was, in fact, on the payroll of the FBI at the time. He disappeared. When the real killers get away, we say it over and over again, the deep state is involved at some level. So they decided that they were going to try to finish off the Southern California chapter of the Black Panther Party. So they organized another cowardly attack to try to emulate what they did in Chicago. They formed a new police unit that had never been used called Special Weapons and Tactics. We now know it as SWAT. had never been used in the United States. They trained these officers. And in the early morning hours when they expected the Panthers to be sleeping, they tried to sneak into the uh, office where they, were, where, where they were. What they didn't know is that there was a brother who had just finished a tour, a military tour uh, of action, fighting for the U.S. military in uh, what was then known as South Vietnam, a brother by the name of Geronimo Pratt at the time, Geronimo G. Jaga, had organized the, uh, the Panthers to, first of all, have centuries on duty, have, always have a night watch, but always have somebody on duty, 24 hours a day, number one. Number two, be heavily armed. And so they, when, they, when they, they, they got to the roof, there was a brother on the roof that was on guard and he hollered down to the guys that were downstairs. There were, there were 11 people downstairs and this one brother on the roof. And he said, the pigs are here, the pigs are here. And at about the same time he said that, the brothers downstairs, the Freeman brothers, and a guy that actually turned out to be an FBI informant, but a, a police informant, but actually he fired shots and shot police officers. Got a guy by the name of uh, Melvin, his nickname was Cotton, I can't remember his last name now. Uh when the police burst through the door, the element of surprise had been wiped out. And unlike Fred Hampton in his sleep, these brothers opened up with everything they had. 410 shotguns, automatic pistols. They had one Thompson submachine gun. They wounded about four SWAT officers and the police retreated. The element of surprise was gone. And these brothers were prepared to fight to the death. There were nine men and two sisters because they had captured the brother that was on the roof. And they proceeded, these 11 Black Panthers, the two sisters were working the phones, the nine brothers were shooting back. They held off 150 to 200 police officers for five hours. Mm. They called the media. They got all of the media out there so that they just couldn't drop a bomb on them. And uh, they were running out of bullets. Uh, at least two of them were, had been wounded. None of them had been killed. And uh, they decided that uh, they would surrender. So there was this sister by the name of Peaches Moore, courageous sister, all of the brothers said, if we walk out, we know we're going to be shot. So Peaches said, I'll walk out. Uh, she removed her, her, her undergarment, held it up, and a white flag of surrender. And then the other brothers uh, came out and they were arrested. But the story gets even better. Johnny Cochran was amongst the people who represented them at trial. This is amazing. They shot police officers who were attacking them. They were acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. Quite an amazing story. Only nine of us against 150. Nobody killed. And that's why you got to give Johnny Cochran his credit. Even though you may not agree with everything he did in his life, Johnny Cochran, man, 
He was the a bomb, brother. <laughs> that brother couldn't deliver, man. In the courtroom, he was a beast. Look, he said he would not rest until he got Geronimo out of prison. And he did. And he did. He said he would He would not. But here's the thing about it. This is this is how the, the Panthers would just had gotten so caught up in internal conflict. The night that they accused Geronimo of uh, killing these, this white couple, he was at a meeting. In Oakland, 500 miles away, with Huey Newton, Kathleen Cleaver, and others. But because Geronimo had peeped a person that Huey had some attractions to as being a possible agent because this is the person who started the, the conflict at Campbell Hall, when Geronimo went to trial, Huey would not let Kathleen and the others who were in the meeting go down and testify on behalf of our brother. Mm. That is low down. Mm. That is absolutely low down. He Geronimo had no business spending one day in prison. And I think he was in prison for what, 27 years mm-hmm. or something like that. But Kathleen, they Huey wouldn't let him go. Over a woman. Yes. A woman. A loose woman. Kept him up all the time. Mm. And so, and so, uh, but you know, this is what the party, you know, was 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 breaking down to. But the story, the story I just told, it's it's in a documentary that everybody should watch, really. It's called 41st and Central. That's the name of the documentary because that's where the uh where the uh shootout took place. And uh you you could get uh bits and pieces of it. Uh, online on YouTube, uh, but you should you should see the see the entire uh, entire documentary. It uh, is well worth seeing that along with uh, Bone, uh, Clee Sloan's uh, documentary "Bastards of the Party." Those are two documentaries that uh, everybody needs to watch. Everybody needs to watch those two documentaries. Uh, a lot of people know about "Bastards of the Party." A lot of people don't know about Forty First and Central. Here with African Liberation Media, Brothers Macaroo and Brother Amos. In closing, we simply say that freedom is a constant struggle. BB for Hodier. BB for Hodier. BB for Hodier. Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not job, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. You are buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.